Welcome to the Donna Sebo Show. Donna is an international mental practitioner, psychic, award-winning author, counselor, speaker, teacher, and radio television talk show personality. She brings to the airwaves talented people from around the world who share their insights and experiences with you, the listening audience. Now, let's join Donna. Hello, good day, good evening. Oh my goodness, we've got such an interesting subject to talk about this evening. What is that? Near-death experiences. I've had the pleasure of talking with many different individuals, and every single person that I have spoken with that has gone through a near-death experience, it has changed their thinking, it has changed their lives, and sometimes in ways that you would not anticipate. Trisha Barker is my guest this evening. Her publication is called Angels in the OR, What Dying Taught Me About Healing, Survival, and Transformation, and I think you might find some of her, well, some of her stories a little bit different from what you usually hear. Trisha, I want to welcome you to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be on the show with you. Trisha, the cover on this book is really captivating. The heads of three surgeons bent over the area of view, obviously, that this is representing, that's being operated on. And it's as if there is this overview that is in place. I'd like for you to share with my audience your background. You're a college senior. uh, You were uh, at the University of Texas in Austin. What, What other background do you have? What kind of work have you done? And what made you decide to go public with your story? Well, that's a really good question. At the time of my near-death experience, I was agnostic, although I had been raised in a somewhat evangelical home. I had ended up at a fine university with a big scholarship, and I was excited about studying and, and hoped to maybe go into editing or law school down the line. And And truly, I was agnostic. I just did not think about the spiritual world, so... That moment, that first moment, I'm sure you'll ask me more about it, out of my body, changed everything about my world, my perspective, my mission on this earth. And since that time, you know, I had a a mission from God in that near-death experience to work as a teacher. So I've worked in public schools, high schools, colleges, universities, and uh, outside of the U.S. and across the country. And I've put... Uh, With English, I've also taught spiritual truth, mystic truth, because poetry really allows you to get into the minds of what people are going through, how they're suffering, and it was just a perfect way to reach a lot of people (laughs) who were hurting in various ways, and I often taught in low-income schools and community colleges and and places where people have real-life issues to navigate, and I, I wanted to use my skills to help them. When I started reading your book, I was very intrigued with something that you shared, because you were in an automobile accident. At the time it occurred, you were in your mid-20s. Tell us what happened. 
Yeah, so most 20-year-olds, and most, you know, I was 22 at the time, but most people in their 20s feel pretty invincible, and death is the farthest thing from their mind. But I was on my way to run the Austin 10K, and this race was a symbol of me getting healthy, getting my life on track, and on the way to that race, though, I had pretty much a head-on collision, and it was a little bit at an angle. I... Look back, and I can't be for sure if the light was yellow or if I was beginning to run it. But either way, the car was going very fast that hit me, and I was going very fast. And we both hit each other at about 60 miles an hour. And my car was a small Honda Civic that crunched up. And immediately, I knew I had severe traumatic injuries because I could not raise my body up. I was just slumped against the driver's seat. So there you are. And then they really had a devil of a time getting you out of your vehicle. And this was something that I I think lots of times people don't realize when there is a serious accident like this. It really is a challenge getting to the person so that the car doesn't catch on fire. Now, I do want to tell you there's something with your phone that, is so try not to move around too much because your signal is is becoming a little garbled. I wanted to mention that before we went any further. But okay. you really, really got very confrontational with a surgeon because you were having an argument about what? Well, when I was taken to the emergency room. Uh, I waited 17 hours before anyone was able to operate on me. And in that mindset, you know, I just knew that I needed spinal surgery or perhaps I wasn't going to walk. I had lost feeling in one of my legs and I was freaking out as most people would be in that um, situation. And I overheard one nurse say to another nurse, He's not coming in. He's on the golf course. Isn't this typical? She doesn't have health insurance, so he's not going to operate on her. And when I heard that, I realized that some doctors do make that decision. If it's wrong, you know, it breaks their uh, their code of ethics. But uh, for whatever reason, this surgeon was not going to operate on me. So uh, in my imagination, I was cursing him and screaming and going, you know, I am worthy of this operation. And and my family ended up, ended up leaving the room because I was just full of this anger. But anger eventually turned to sadness, which turned to just desperation and deep pain because I had several internal injuries, three completely crushed vertebrae and pieces of bone pressing on my spine, a shattered ankle, and absolutely not a single painkiller, nothing. And people think that that is, you know, horrible, but until a surgeon signed off and said, yes, she can have pain medicine, I'm going to operate on her, they couldn't make that call. So eventually a surgeon came, and she was off duty, and she'd been working for 40 hours straight, and I was really nice to this one because I thought this was my only hope of getting a surgeon, and she uh, she ended up uh, talking with me. She had to go home, rest, eat, and then she came back and was prepared to operate on me. Now, this scenario sadly, is something that can happen to anybody. And surgeons are not a dime a dozen. They're a special group in and of themselves. And you just mentioned that the one that ended up operating on you, one of them, 
40 hours she had already put in. So this is something that I think is a very poignant point when it comes to getting medical care. So you managed to get through that. Now, when they started the surgery, you end up going through all of the instructions with the anesthesiologist, and then you were gone, you were out, but you said you didn't know how long the doctors had been at work when you popped out of your physical body, slightly above and to the right of the operating table. So here you are, you had gone under, you were out, and then all of a sudden, you're, you're conscious. You're out of your body. You're floating in the hospital room, the operating room, and you're fully aware of everything that's going on. That's incredible. And it was a hyper-awareness, I have to tell you, Donna. It was an awareness as if suddenly my consciousness filled up the room. You know, we feel contained in our bodies, and I felt as if I was looking down at my body, the surgeons, and I really, honestly, was pretty excited because I had been agnostic going into surgery, and I really didn't think that the spirit went on in this way, but I was certain that I had a higher form of intelligence. To me, this was, I've had lucid dreams since and many spiritual experiences, but this was a bit different because I saw the body, I saw how bloody it was, I saw the surgeons at work, and it it was this moment of total disconnection from the physical form and this knowing that my spirit body continues on and that this is the reality of who I am. You describe being able to see everything. In fact, it's a view that I think often surgeons wish they could have, where they could be above and look down and be able to have the perception like you were experiencing. And you saw then what you described as two of the most intelligent beings you had ever encountered. What were they like? Was it just energy? Did they have form? What what did you experience? Those questions that you ask are the same questions that people have asked me. Students have asked me. Others have asked me, you know, are they angels? Are they light beings? What do they look like? How tall are they? You know, these questions are... People want to imagine them, and as an English major, I've tried so hard to describe these beings over and over again, and the best that I can say is that they were eight or nine feet tall, and they were made of light, but this form that they had didn't seem traditionally angelic. They just seemed very strong and highly intelligent, as if they had greater knowledge of the workings of the universe than these doctors, and these doctors had to be incredibly smart. I mean, neurosurgeons are, you know, no dummies. <laughs> and yet these angels standing behind them, these light beings, if you want to call them that instead, were just massively intelligent, and they communicated through telepathic communication, which was through light, but initially they just put my spirit body at ease, and I knew that I could depend on what they're saying. And there's a, a lot of people who are afraid of this idea of angels. And, and sometimes these are very traditional Christians. And I, I just want to assure them that your spirit has enough knowing to know 
what is good and what is true and what is there for your benefit. And I knew that those angels were there to assist the doctors and to assist me in some way, and that they were good, you know, that they were essentially healing and intelligent. And, and that was the main message that they were giving me, was that I would be fine. But they also, in a quirky way, kind of said, watch this. <laughs> and that was like one uh, word at a time that kind of hit me very hard, almost as if they were showing off, and they sent this light through the back of the doctor's through their hands, and my whole body lit up, and it no longer looked like this bloody mess on the table. It was full of light, and I understood that this light was healing and was going to assist my healing and was assisting the doctors in getting these bone fragments from my body, and that I'd walk, and I saw in this place you're a little bit timeless, and so I saw this image of myself running at some point in the future because that was something I'd love to do, and you know, when you have a back injury like that, you wonder if you'll ever <laughs> even walk. And and I saw that very clearly, and I was just at peace. But then the odd thing happened. The monitor flatlined at that point. And so I thought, well, okay, what does this mean? This means I'm dead. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is it. I don't want to sit here and watch this. I, and so I left the room at that point. Well, why... And what I find so fascinating with these experiences that people have is that it can, there's really no sense of time. There is this awareness. Everything seems to happen from a point of an outsider of tremendous speed of communication and information that is conveyed within a very, very short period of time. Very short period of time. And you ended up going through what people will call a life review, and that's what you had, there was so much that was given to you by this experience, whether you were the cause of this, that, or the other in any part of your life, and even with the accident, or you weren't. It didn't make any difference. And... There's a four-letter word that was very, very strong. Love is all that Mm -hmm. matters. That was absolutely just the top-notch quality of information that you were given to. Now, someone may say, really? Is that all it was? Explain what it was like, if you can. Yeah, so this word can be broken down through all those experiences in the near-death experience, but it can also be broken down in every moment of our lives. And and one of the things I learned in my near-death experience life review was not to judge other people by the way they dress, their education level, how they look, just not to stereotype people, to really instead look into their hearts, because that's how... That's how God views us. God doesn't care about our degrees or our income level or, or you know, who we know or what bands we listen to. And young people can get so cliquish and so um, sure of what they know. And then I saw from that other side this that love and love that spreads from person to person, from person to animal, from person to nature, that love is what animates this world. And other near-death experiencers have been told directly from God that millions of us on this planet can affect billions, that, you know, our actions of love and kindness 
can spread across this world in astronomical ways. And it, it looks disheartening, like we aren't really making enough progress at times. But when you concentrate just on your own light being and your own self and how much good you can do, you don't know all the effects that you've made in your life. You don't know how you've touched eternity just by empowering one person who goes on and then his or her family and kids and loved ones have a better life because of the kindness and support that you gave that one person. So I really saw that love and non-judgment was pretty crucial. Now, people can take this to extremes, I think, and we could have a a really long (laughs) discussion about that. I mean, of course, there are appropriate boundaries and there are, you know, consequences for criminal and negative behavior in this world, but even in those circumstances, a lot of times healing is what rehabilitates people and love and that connection of the soul to nature, to love, to the essence of who they should be is their greatest hope of, of rehabilitation. I chuckled to myself when you said that this experience took a jaded and arrogant young woman that you feel you were into a whole different level after it. And I also smiled when I read, you said, this intelligent light, and I'm quoting from your book, a force that loved me so much, knew that I hated growing up poor and wanted a career more lucrative than the teaching profession, yet I was told. It wasn't suggested. I was told I had to be a teacher. Well, having gone through something like that, where I was told a certain something, and I said, I don't like that. <laughs> I know how you feel. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you want to do that, too. <laughs> but, but I bet it's more joyful than you imagined. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, you know, I think of times that I've been said, this is what needs to be done. No, thank you. I do not want to do that. No, 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 no. And guess what we end up doing? Yes, exactly what we're supposed to do. <laughs> so I know it. I know it. It, is, it has been an absolute joy to work with people, and I feel that God not only wanted me to be a blessing in their lives, each one of those students was a blessing and a part of my healing. Because sometimes we don't address childhood wounds and the trauma that can build up in life. And when we're working with other people and we're trying to help them, then we do the research and we do the healing work and we make sure that we understand that, you know, we want to give sound advice to people in tough situations. And so I honestly feel that that my wounds begin to heal as I helped many students. Mm -hmm. I think when... You have a profound experience like what you did. You cannot help but be changed. It's, if nothing else, and it's different for everyone, if nothing else, you're made to think because you realize that you have had something happen to you where the odds, according to logistics, are a billion to one, maybe more, but you've had it. And you can't ignore it. That experience is yours. It's a fascinating story. Everybody, like I said, everybody's experience with this has its own unique patterning. 
And you had to be in a body cast. I mean, you went through extensive surgeries. Absolutely. Uh, just, you know, just what you share in your book. This is really intense surgery. You had to be in a body cast. So you learned a lot about who your real friends were, and it forced you to change your mind about many things, didn't it? It certainly did. You know, the people who had maturity in their 20s had either lost a friend or had been in an automobile accident themselves, or they'd been through some some type of tragedy, and they were so much more open-hearted, and you know, they knew what to do. And then there was a, a variety of responses, immature responses, where people were self-centered but showed up, and, and then other people who were too much in party mode, because Austin, Texas is a, a party school, UT, and people were out smoking pot and couldn't find the hospital or <laughs> upset that, you know, I just was going to miss a bunch of parties, and I thought, Wow, that's immature. <laughs> that is just a level of immaturity that I can't believe I was a part of, but I was a part of that. Mm-hmm. And um, that near-death experience, I think, granted me a different type of perspective and consciousness immediately to where, well, you think about you think about all of human life as kind of a grieving stage. We're in denial, and then we, you know, have some bargaining and anger and depression around it, and then we eventually accept that we're, we're going to die, that we're mortal. And I was still in denial. You know, I thought, I'm not going to die, I'm young. You know, I've got tons of life to live. And then I went straight from denial to complete acceptance and almost a missing of the other side because the love that I'd experienced here on Earth was nothing in comparison to that great love of God. And how it filters through parents and friends and, you know, different communities, well, it's often pretty warped. (laughs) It's just a piece here or there. And and that longing for God and that complete envelopment of love is something I think a lot of near-death experiencers struggle with for a long time, because if you feel like broken or, or just not whole in any way, and then you experience what wholeness and safety and love and freedom and joy and all of that is in the presence of God, then you come back here and you're like, wow, people are messed up. <laughs> they don't they don't understand. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You ended up and I know you've got a lot more stories before you went to Korea that are in the book, which I think uh, angels in the OR people would really enjoy reading about. But you had some pretty tough times with different environments as a teacher. You eventually healed. You were eventually able to go back to to go to work. You got your training, your education. Then you went to South Korea. Now, what I found so interesting about your story, Tricia, is that it all was not perfection and light afterwards. In fact, some of the greatest trials of your life came after this near-death experience, especially the one in Korea. I have to say that as time goes on, and I understand it more fully, I think that perhaps I was tested to that degree to see if I can remain in the flow of God. And 
then also just the talk. You know, we can be spiritual, we can be near-death experiencers, but we can also be other things. You know, you can be an academic, you can talk about sociology, you can talk about issues, and and a near-death experience for a 15-year-old girl or a 22-year-old girl is going to be very different from a 50-year-old man who's a doctor. <laughs> you know, like he's mm-hmm. not going to face sexual harassment, most likely. He's not going to face being a, a victim of a crime. But a lot of young women in their early 20s are victims of sexual assault. And if they travel overseas, then they're even more in danger of that. And I, that didn't even cross my mind you know, going to a foreign country that I could be a target of this. But it uh, it hit me that, you know, years later that we walk through this world in our gender, you know, in our race, in our specific body, you know, in our, you know, families that have conditioned us in certain ways with the knowledge that we have. And certainly a near-death experience opens up some of your intuition and, and certain abilities, but we still are human and in danger of, of walking through this world and being targeted. And in fact, sometimes when you're filled with this love for all people, you see the good in other people and you don't really see the darkness in people because you see their potential. And I was certainly one of those people that wanted to believe that there was always a way to shift people into light and remember their goodness. But yeah, I was a victim of uh, sexual assault in South Korea. And that that certainly brought me to my knees. I felt like I'd had the most spiritual, profound, beautiful experience imaginable with the near-death experience, and then one of the most horrific physical experiences that, it, more than the physical part, I think it took away some of my personal power mm-hmm. and my security in this world. And so there was some dark years of trying to just regain pieces of that, and then there were several years of I'm really energetically working with it, and I, I came to many conclusions about how people can more quickly heal from traumatic events like sexual assault. Um, you know, each event is, is different, but community, a loving community can help people heal when people are willing to grieve with you, to love you and make you feel safe. And and certainly I'm a big believer in, in energy work. You know, it, it, there's therapy is important, and and EMDR and, and post-traumatic stress disorder work is vital. But there's something about energy work that really begins to strengthen the body again and to release some of that um, trauma. Mm-hmm. Life, and I have, my listeners have heard me say this more than once, life is never a straight line. It's got twists and turns and knots in it, and you hit a big knot. And then some. And there's so many things that will happen to us, and we will say, I I don't understand. I'm a good person. Why is this happening to me? It doesn't make sense. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. It really, honest to God, does not make sense. But I think that your story is very powerful in that you did reach out for some help, and then... Your near-death experience came in another way, another level of understanding for you that made you aware that what happened to you was not, it wasn't you. It was, it was an event, and I'm not phrasing this lightly. It was an event, but you were going to take back your power. You were going to have your power 
as a woman, as an individual. And that is something I think your story is very, very significant about as well. You you share so many different things. You share about your anger and, and other things and talking with your dad and then working with students, working in different school systems where you had nincompoops as superiors and then some of the schools that you were in, you had wonderful superiors. And all of this is is part of your journey that is actually going on. I think you mentioned to me you've got, what, three full-time jobs at this time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically, I'm, I'm still teaching full-time at the community college, and, and they gave me a faculty leave to write a book to help empower uh, college students to be successful. So it's basically a dis- distillation of, of motivational material for students. And then, you know, I have my platform and my own, um, you know, online classes to talk about spirituality that I'm beginning to launch in different directions. And so I am a busy person. Gee, you sound like me. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I really think, Tricia, that your story, when someone reads your book, Angels in the OR, this gives an entirely different perspective of what a dear a near death experience can be like and how it empowered you and made you aware of certain things but just like you've said there was a part of you that wanted to see nothing but the light in people which is great but there's a lot of people out there that don't even turn the switch on so you have to be aware of that and one of the things that you had the experience with is sometimes you could read other people's thoughts you came back with a, a level of clairvoyance with this as well, which is very common with near-death experiences with different people. I've got a friend. She has so many different skills and gifts, and she she didn't have them, she felt, before she had her two near-death experiences. However, afterwards, she had a job to do, just like you were told. You have a job to do. I really think that that is quite significant. I think that's incredibly significant. Yeah. So the abilities uh, over time, I've I've grown to have more confidence in them. But but that's another element of this. When you're a young woman, and you're in a culture in the South, <laughs> Texas is where I was living in most of this time. You know, people can be very afraid of mediumship gifts or, or moments of psychic ability, and and there can be and certainly in the nineties a lot of people made fun of that, and then people can be very patronizing about these gifts. And it has taken the culture some time to validate this and to um, you know to really give it its place. But intuition is vital and important, and I, I tell people it's like. Breathing. It should be our gift. It's our protector. People in the military certainly develop it. People in in high conflict situations develop a, a higher sensitivity. Um, children who are abused have often become highly sensitive people because they're scanning their environment. So, you know, a near death experience coupled with a lot of these things has made me 
pretty perceptive, you know. Yes, and that's a good advantage. Trisha Barker, this has been a delight having you as a guest. Like I said, I love the cover on the book, Angels in the OR. Now, you have a website, and it's Trisha, T-R-I-C-I-A, Barker, B-A-R-K-E-R-N-D-E, which is an abbreviation for neardeathexperiences.com. Trisha Barker, NDE.com. Trisha, I wish you nothing but the best. Good luck on your upcoming classes that you're putting together. And, well, if you decide to come out with another book, be sure and let me know. Oh, I certainly will. Thank you for this wonderful interview. It's been a delight chatting with you. It's been a my pleasure as well. For those of you listening, Trisha Barker, NDE.com. Check out her website. And, Trisha, I'm saying goodbye at this point. We're going to be taking a break. When we come back, well, those telephone lines are going to be open. And the telephone number, if you'd like to call in and chat with me, is 253 582 55 Nine seven. Donna Sebo here. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Donna Sebo Show. If you'd like to have an opportunity to be featured on this program or Warriors for Peace heard Wednesdays, please send a copy of your publication along with your contact information to the Donna Sebo Show, Post Office Box nine seven two seven two, Lakewood, Washington nine eight four nine seven. Please allow six to eight weeks for review of the publication. Again, the mailing address. Address is Post Office Box 97272, Lakewood, Washington 98497. Live a happy life. Turn your average life into a happy life with Paula Vale's book, Why Am I So Happy? Tired of waking up to the same routine but just a different day? Would you like to live a happy life? Effortlessly? We want to introduce you to Paula Vale, the author of Why Am I So Happy? Paula is a TV slash radio host, Reiki master slash teacher, and published author. She understands life's challenges and will guide you in releasing negative thoughts to find emotional and physical joy and balance. Paula shares tips on how to invest in yourself to become the joy-filled person you were meant to be. Paula's book, Why Am I So Happy?, is informative, inspiring, and overflowing with gratitude. Her words benefit both men and women and provide a guide to living a happy, healthy, fun, and prosperous life. Why live the happy life? Because you deserve it. It's that simple. Don't procrastinate because you could be living your happy life now. Purchase Paula's book, Why Am I So Happy, on Amazon.com today. Donna Sebo here, 253-582-5597. Let's see if we have a caller on the line. Nope, they hung up. Anyway, um, if you are listening to the show and you want to call in, that's wonderful. 253, here we go. Sometimes when people are on cell phones, the cell phones won't hold. So let me see if we have a caller here. No, something happened there. Somebody called in, and maybe their phone isn't working. Anyway, 253-582-5597. What I wanted to share with you is there are so many stories with people having near-death experiences and other experiences that are, are very, very unique and unusual. But there was a woman. I was in a class, and she was a healer. And in the class that she was instructing, 
and this was down in Los Angeles, I remember being quite surprised with her going into a story about a woman that she knew and knew quite well, who was a healer. And this woman was so skilled as a healer that the surgeons of of some particular hospitals knew about her, and she was on call. She actually was on call by various surgeons because they knew that she created something in the operating room that was very, very positive. They couldn't explain it, but they had her on call. So she always had a suitcase packed of whatever she might need because she might be at the hospital. Sometimes surgeries would take hours, and she would be there doing her healing work. Well, she was called very, very late one evening, and this particular evening, she was asked by the person that was calling for the surgeon, and let's see if we have a caller here. Hi, this is Donna. Are you calling into the show? Um, I was, uh, this is Trisha. I was booted off. Was I meant to leave? Oh, yes, dear. We were finished. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay. All, all right. right. Sorry. That's quite Thank all right, you. Trisha. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. Anyway, what happened is the woman was asked by the person that was calling in for the doctor then said, the doctor wants you at the hospital. Can you be at the hospital? We have an emergency surgery. And she gets up. She has all of her stuff ready to go. She's dressed within minutes. She lived fairly close to this particular hospital, so it didn't take her long to get there. And the doctor said, we have a very, very critical surgery here. This man is dying, and this surgery is meant to save his life. I don't know how you do what you do, but I'm going to ask you to get scrubbed. We are almost ready to start performing the surgery. You are to stand in a certain corner, and whatever it is that you do, we need all the help we can get. So she gets scrubbed up, gets into the uniform necessary for the operating room. She has the mask on, and she's in a corner. She stood in that corner for hours, and what was described to me was that she she said, all I did was have prayer and direct energy, not just to the patient, but also to the surgeon's that were doing the surgery and all of the assistance that was being given by the nurses and the other specialists that were in the room. Well, after many hours, they finally were finished. They did what they had to do, stitched the person up. The doctor walked over to her and he said, thank you very much. You can go now. That was the end of it. Well, she was accustomed to this. This is something she had been doing for quite a few years and... That was all. So she goes home. She goes to bed. And later in the day, she is called by the doctor. She said, I would like to have you come to the hospital. Can you be here within, let's say, an hour? And she said, of course. How's everything going? He said, I'm not going to discuss anything with you. I want you to come to the hospital with and be with me. I'm going in to see the patient, and I'd like for you to be with me. She said, okay. She didn't know anything. So she goes to the hospital. She's in the hallway. The doctor sees her. He said, you're not to say one word when you go into this room. And she said, okay. I won't say anything. So... He walks into the room, 
Then he motions for her to come into the room. She does. She stands next to him. The man that had been operated on was conscious. And he said, I know that woman. She was standing in the corner and she was saying prayers and sending energy to all of you. And the doctor just looked at him and looked at her. He had never had a patient describe to him exactly what was going on in that operating room. He knew everything that the people had said, and he knew who she was. He recognized her, as I mentioned. The doctor was flabbergasted. She was really surprised, but yet she wasn't surprised. But she had not been aware that he had been out of his body during the entire surgery. So for all of those hours, he was in that room, and then apparently there were some other things that he had experiences with. But she said it really was a powerful statement because he let the doctor know that he heard her prayers and he also felt the energy of healing that she was sending to everybody in the room. The doctor was absolutely amazed. These are experiences that people have, and it is something that it's very, very difficult for people to sometimes wrap their minds around. Now, there's a lot of people that flatline, that come back from a surgery. It happened to my husband, and they have no awareness of anything. They have no what we call near-death experience. But they've actually had one. They don't bring the memory back. This is something that is very, very common. And it is something that I know my speaker that I'm going to be having at my seminar on February the 15th. She did a lot of research. She found out, and the staffs at the hospital worked with her when she was doing her research well over 40 years ago that there were many people that died that were resuscitated, came back, had no near-death experience. But she also found people had different experiences in different ways, and it didn't necessarily collate with what we would describe as a near-death experience, yet it was especially profound for them anyway. So this is something that, again, it's going to we're going to be discussing this at my seminar because... Kimberly Clark Sharp is going to be giving uh, a talk. She's going to be one of my keynote speakers. And for those of you in Western Washington, this is going to be held at the Poodle Dog on February the 15th. And it will be in the Rainier Banquet Room at the Poodle Dog Restaurant. And that includes lunch. Go to my website. You can find all the information about it. But this, to me, I think it's wonderful that we're able to talk about these things. It's so important. And... More and more people are coming forward. There are military people that have had these profound experiences on the battlefield. Just things that it sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie, but it's not. It's real. It's very, very real. And it enables you to recognize that life has so many different levels to it. So many different levels to it. But I did want to share that story with you. I feel that it's important to pass along what other people 
Say what other people share, because it makes a difference. You need to know you're not alone in this world. You really are not. No matter who you are, no matter where you are on this planet, you are not alone. Now, you may be going through some grungy drudgery or miseries or, you know, just real ugly circumstances like my guest went through. But this is something that can happen to all of us. It is something that can happen to all of us. And so consequently, we need to know we are not alone. And that's what Trisha's story shares, too. She learned she was not alone. She wasn't alone. That there are those that are with us at all times and all places, period. And it's really quite special when you learn that. Because you realize you, you really don't have to be concerned or afraid about certain things. But you do have to still be responsible, just like she said. Donna Sibo here, and I want to remind you that this Saturday I am going to be on the psychic panel at the gathering, the psychic showcase. It's on Saturday evening at Elmer's Restaurant, their banquet room, and I will be on the panel there. I will not be speaking, but I will be on that panel. And There's just so many wonderful things that are going on and happening. And, oh, my goodness, what a lineup we've got for the month of February. And I do have to say, for those of you that got my email newsletter, my computer and a piece of software system had PMS. And instead of giving the dates of the shows and the people that are appearing on those particular dates. All of my shows were put, excepting for Warriors for Peace, and I don't understand this, but the shows were put in chronological order. Now, if you go to my website, go to my website, go to the newsletter section, everything is listed in the proper way. Not chronologically, but by actual show date. Now, tomorrow, we are going to be talking about how to eat, how to live, and how to thrive. Two ladies, two dynamic ladies, say yes. We're in a new year. Let's get it together and get the show on the road so you feel good about yourself. Then we're going to be talking about the land of the fee, F-E-E. Devin Fergus has put together a most interesting publication. And then you've been hearing about Paula Vale's book, Why Am I So Happy? Well, we're going to have her right here in studio. Yes, we're going to be talking to her. And we're going to be discussing... What it is, through all the challenges she went through in her life, why it is that she feels so good about life itself. And then William Federer. William is a historian, and we're going to be talking about significant individuals of the African-American black culture and how they, men and women both, how they have contributed significantly to American history, to American enterprise, and so much more. It's really a delight. William, I've had him on my show before, and my goodness, the research this man does, it's really a passion, and it's so near and dear to his heart, and he loves to share it. So that's a little bit of the lineup we've got coming up this week. It's a powerful week, and I wanted to share some things with you that I feel uh, are, are, are significant, and... I wanted to mention something that I came across, and I thought, you never know who's going to come up with a concept and an idea 
that is going to bring such tremendous benefits to people. Now, this occurred with some Australian researchers. They have developed a test that can detect cancer cells in 10 minutes with 90% accuracy. How does that sound? I think that sounds pretty darn good. Now, healthy DNA and cancer DNA, they found in their research, stick to metal surfaces differently. This is going to sound so simple. They've discovered it. I think it's great. Think of how much money it would save if we could do this. Now, this is what they discovered. When cancer DNA is added to water, mixed with gold nanoparticles, which give the water a pink appearance, the water retains its rosy hue. When healthy DNA is added, it binds to the nanoparticles in a way that turns the water blue. They said... The test is so cheap, and it's so simple, it could be used as a screening at your primary care physician's office. Now, can you imagine, you could go into your doctor, they could give you this test, and they could let you know, within just a matter of minutes, if you have something going on in your body relative to cancer that needs to be paid attention to. Ten minutes! That's amazing! That's what you call preventative medicine. I think it's fabulous. And if something shows up, okay, now let's go to work and let's see what's going on in the body. They are looking at applying this type of testing to different types of cancers. Now, that's, that is something that is real significant because we literally have thousands of different types of cancers. And people can have all Some will be benign. Some will be benign until there's a trigger of some kind that sets it off. Absolutely amazing. Now, there's another little item that I thought was sort of interesting. They say if you're not getting enough sleep, you may need to have a glass of water before you go to bed. Not milk water. Why is that? Well, there's a hormone in the body called vasopressin. Now, that helps to regulate the body's fluid levels. It apparently, the longer you sleep, it's released in greater quantities. So those of you not getting enough sleep might not have the optimal amount of it. So, It was said in this article, if you're short on slumber, make a point of drinking water. Now, that doesn't mean a bucket's worth. You know, four to six ounces of water. Okay, make it eight ounces. You may not need to even get up during the night. You may just actually have a form of dehydration. I just love it when people keep thinking and keep working towards stuff. And that 10-minute cancer test, really really grabbed my attention, and I thought I would share it with you. Boy, I am seeing so many different articles talking about how the glaciers are melting and how this is happening and that is happening. My goodness, with all the volcanic activity, I'm surprised we've got any cold water anywhere. I mean, really, the volcanoes are just going full steam, if you will, and if they decide to blow their top, believe me, 
And there are active volcanoes right now that are spewing on this planet. doesn't take much, and it affects the weather. It affects everything, just like the massive fires affect everything with the residue that it goes into the air, all of that and more. Oh, I wanted to tell you, too, I have a recipe for chicken breasts that I think you're really going to like, and it is... It's got spinach and basil with it. Really, you know, really good. Really simple. Anybody could fix this. So I'm going to be sharing that with you, too. So you might want to have a pad of paper and a pen handy. But I also thought that there was a comment that was made, and this is about an aha moment. Sometimes people are doing things that are not the best situation that they should be engaged in or activity they should be engaged in. And there will be a situation, a conversation, something that goes on that creates a shift in them. And sometimes they may call it their aha moment. Now, my guest, her aha moment was with the near-death experience. This is a gentleman by the name of Simon 31 years old. He was a con man, just absolutely the best of the best. He had learned all of his tricks, if you will, from his grandfather. His grandfather had built a very successful business, and he was constantly fleecing people. So he had a grandson that just said, "Mm, I want to be just like you. Well, Simon had his particular series of enterprises that he engaged in. He had learned gambling tricks, and he had his marks, if you will, his victims. Uh, he left. He was. He met so many people, and he said, "I'd leave them broken. They were wiped out of all their money, and never in a million years." He was so good at what he did, did he ever think he would not do it? Well, this is what occurred. He was in Europe. Yes, I guess he ran out of them in the U.S. Or somebody ran and figured out what his game was. And anyway, he's in Europe, and he figures out who's going to be his next victim. He's in a bar. And so he plies the person with drinks and drew him into what was called a cross. Now, what is that? It's a classic con where the victim is made to believe he or she is part of a foolproof get-rich scheme. He said it went perfectly. I took him for an extremely large amount of money. Now, after he was done, he hustled the guy out of the hotel room where all of this had occurred And he intended to leave him in the hallway of the hotel for security to deal with. But something happened that he wasn't expecting. His mark, his victim, totally fell apart. He said, I had never in my entire life seen someone break that badly. He said he was sliding down the wall. He was weeping, he was wailing, and he said, for the first time in my life, I actually felt sorry for one of my victims. But what he did was the aha moment. He returned every penny that he had fleeced the guy of, and 
and he said to himself, I don't want to do this anymore. He said, I just don't want to do this anymore. He said the very next day, he noticed how much lighter he felt, and he kept his word to himself. He never, ever ran another con. Now, for many, many, many years, this gift that he had of talking to people, he said he turned it into a one-man show that ran off Broadway for eight years. He turned it into something that was entertainment for people. Well, eventually, in his older years, he suffered a stroke, and he had so many friends, so many friends in the professional world of entertainment and otherwise, that he was able to afford rehabilitation, and it was complete. He said, the turning point in my life made all the difference in the world. So it's a little bit different than a near-death experience, but it is what I'd call a new life experience. N-L-E, yes. New life experience. And that enabled him to have a much richer life because of it. Donna Sebo here. Okay, this recipe is really quick. It is a boneless breast of chicken stuffed with spinach and basil. You need four boneless chicken breasts, four tablespoons of your favorite oil, olive is mine, four cloves of garlic, you want to mince them finely, 24 spinach leaves, very coarsely chopped, 16 large basil leaves, a little bit of salt and pepper, and four tablespoons of whatever you want, butter, whatever your favorite spread might be. Now, what you do, your chicken breasts, you're going to pat them dry, and then you cut a pouch horizontally in the middle of each breast, and you leave one edge of the breast completely attached. You add a couple of tablespoons of your favorite oil, put the garlic in, let it simmer for about a minute when it gets fragrant, then put in the basil and the spinach, cook until it's just wilted. That takes about 45 seconds little salt, little pepper, allow it to cool, and then add, you know, your little bit of butter there, and then stuff the chicken breasts with equal parts of the mixture, and then place them over moderate heat, add a little bit more oil, cook the breasts for about four to five minutes on each side until the chicken is thoroughly cooked and the spinach is heated through. Just nothing flat serves four people. Really yummy. Really yummy. A little bit of, you know, your favorite pasta, whatever you like. Really light, healthy, and delicious. Very, very flavorful. And you can alter your seasonings, too, if you like. Well, I know we're just about out of time. Donna Sebo here. Don't forget, tomorrow we're going to be talking about eating, living, and thriving. Yes. Remember always that you're the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. You may not be able to control circumstances that are brought into your life by someone else, but you can control how you respond to it and how you use it to leverage yourself so that you move forward in life, not backwards. Donna Sebo here. I'm so glad you joined me. Whatever you do, remember you are a light. You really are. Keep that switch on. No charge. No extra bill. Be yourself because you do make a difference.
Donna Sebo here. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Donna Sebo Show. We're delighted that you were able to join us and invite you to tell your friends and family about the program. Have a wonderful day.